0: So as it is the uh, second Sunday in Advent, uh, we are kind of in this four-week series of looking at what we can be expectant of from God. And we're doing it perhaps in a bit of a different way in that we're looking at a bunch of stories of babies in the Bible, but we aren't looking at Jesus first. We're looking at how those individuals foreshadow what is to come in the person of Jesus, which we celebrate, of course, at Christmas time. And so you might remember if you were with us last week, we looked at Isaac, uh, who was sort of one of the forefathers of uh, the Jewish people. And we heard about how God used uh, his birth and his coming in the life of Abraham to sort of show us uh, that sometimes we need to just trust in God's timing. Today uh, we're looking a little bit differently in sort of in the same frame but in towards we need to trust God for his provision and we need to trust in his providence and I'll define that word a little bit later. But today we're going to do so by looking at the story of Moses. So if you've got a Bible I'd encourage you to join me in Exodus chapter 2. Uh, If you've been around the church for a while, hopefully you know your way there, because we just studied Exodus not that long ago together as a church. But as you're turning there, let me remind you sort of the setup to what happens before Moses was born. Uh, So this all takes place in Egypt and the surrounding area, but... uh, Earlier than Moses' birth, in in fact, somewhere between 1500 and 1600 BCE, the people of Israel had moved into Egypt. And the reason they moved into Egypt was that God had orchestrated a series of events that would ensure that his people could avoid a nasty famine. And so God had put uh, one of Moses' ancestors, this guy named Joseph, in a position of power. And he was able to ensure the people of Egypt and the surrounding areas had everything they needed in advance of this famine that was to come. And so when Joseph's family finally arrived, the people of Israel landed there. And it was a good place for them to be, at least for a while, Well, what happened is the Israelites, they had sort of come into this place, they avoid this famine, and they decide to take God seriously when he says, be fruitful and multiply. And so they have a whole lot of babies. And they just keep having babies, and more babies, and those babies have babies, and those babies have babies, and for hundreds of years, there's all these babies until it comes to this tipping point where the Egyptian pharaoh goes, this is going to be a problem. The problem is that they're out-multiplying us, and so soon there's going to be more of them than us, and what are we going to do then? If they decide that they want to take control of our lands, they're going to have the ability to do just that. And so what the Pharaoh at the time of Moses finally does is he says, that's it. What we're going to do is we're going to enslave all the Israelite people, we're going to make them work hard to build sort of all the structures for our cities and for the worship that we do, and then what we're going to do, just to cap it all off, is we're going to kill their baby boys. They're going to allow the girls to go because that might help them in the expansion of their population, but we're going to make sure the boys aren't reproducing later on and that sort of brings us into this place where we see there's sort of this tumultuous time in the land of egypt and so if you're there hopefully by now we're going to read from that point on in exodus chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 if you don't have a bible you can watch or read it on the screen we read this now a man of the tribe of levi married a levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it in tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it amongst the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister then stood at a distance to see what would happen. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking alongside the riverbank. When she saw the basket amongst the reeds, she sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and so she felt sorry for him. This is one of those Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother, Pharaoh's daughter, and said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So right off the bat, we have this baby who is born into this season of injustice and uncertain circumstances. I'm sure for many of these Israelite people, they're wondering where their God might be. And in fact, we'll read in just a moment, they actually end up calling out and crying out because of all the injustice they're enduring. But despite the work that God had done in Joseph's life, which led to the Egyptians thriving, these later generations just had nothing that they wanted to do with these Israelite people. And so, of course, when... uh, Moses' mom sees this beautiful baby. She ends up trying to do her best to save him. That's kind of a funny point. I don't know why it mentions that she thought he was a cute baby. If he was an ugly baby, who knows what would have happened. But anyways, that's just the things that go through my mind. But as she grabs this baby, he's cute. She puts him in this basket. She places him in the reeds for his security. She just trusts, God, will you do something to save my baby? Now, it's pretty incredible what God did. Of course, he orchestrates, and it seems maybe like happenstance, but we'll see later that he orchestrates that Pharaoh's daughter will come out and she'll take a bath, find this baby at just the right time, hasn't been left too long in that uh, Mediterranean, North African sun, and she's able to, out of a place of compassion, choose to love him. So she sends him off with the mother, who's nursed for a while. Then he comes home, and he ends up getting the life. The life perhaps anyone in that day and age could possibly have wanted. He becomes an adopted grandson of the most powerful ruler in that part of the world at the time. Now, despite all this, we see that something happens in the life of Moses. Something stirs within his heart and within his mind to cause him to act in a way that perhaps no other person in his position and certainly no other Egyptian would have act. We're told that he acts out of justice and love and mercy towards his people. There's a story that comes uh, just after the one we just read, which is this time where eventually after Moses sort of gets this place where he's bored of being in the palace, he goes out to see what's happening with his people, the Israelites. And he goes out and he sees that all this injustice is being done and he's frustrated by it. And so he lashes out and he kills one of the Egyptians who was beating a Hebrew person. This, of course, will lead him to have to flee and move off into the wilderness of Midian, but we'll see that even there, God starts a process. You see, all along, what God had wanted was to provide for this young man so that he could ultimately show his love and providence in the life of the Israelites. And this is all because of something that was occurring. A few verses later in Exodus chapter 2, we read this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. You might remember last week when we talked about this timing with Abraham and Isaac's birth, God revealed that he does things in a certain way at a certain time so he can accomplish his will in the world. And as we see, sort of expanded in the history timeline is just a continuation of that story. What happens is down the family line comes Moses. And again, this is this unexpected baby in the life of the world around him, but very much expected for God and his plans. We'll see that what God wants to do through Moses is actually to foreshadow the extent by which he's willing to go to show his love to his people. I mean, let's just think about what happens with with Moses. We see that Moses, uh, he first acts out and then he's sent off into the wilderness where there's this period of time in which the Israelites begin to groan. And there, what happens is he meets a great man who ends up encouraging him and marrying his daughter to this guy and giving him the support and training and discipline that Moses will need to eventually go and meet Pharaoh. And while he's doing that, what's going to happen is God's going to make sure that Moses understands his plan. And so one day while Moses is out doing his shepherding duties for uh, his father-in-law is he comes across what? The burning bush. And we know this story, right? Uh, And so he comes to the burning bush, and God is within this bush that is burning but not consuming. And from that place, God tells him the plan. Moses, I want you to go and enact my plan for the people of Israel. And over a series of conversations that Moses will have with God, we'll see that God continues time and time again to reinforce that he loves the Israelites, and that he wants to accomplish something for them. And so God says, Moses, go. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Well, that is impossible for any other Israelite to do, except for Moses. There would be no way one of these slaves could go up to the top man in all the land and say, you know what? I don't like what you're doing with my people. Let them go. The only reason he gets away with it is because he's family. Right? Isn't there just something where family can just say things to each other that maybe no one else can well, even though there's this distant relationship and Moses has been adopted in, there is something that God orchestrates in that so that he's able to go to Pharaoh. And so he does what God would order him to do and he goes, let my people go. Now, Pharaoh, of course, laughs and sends them off. And that's when Moses has another conversation with uh, God. And God says, I'm going to show you the extent by which I'm willing to go. And so, over the next series of interactions, we know, of course, the story of the ten plagues which God sends. God sends these plagues to have a massive, disastrous impact in the life of those in Egypt. And he really uh, left no stone unturned so they knew what was happening. Each plague attacked a specific aspect of Egyptian life, a specific God that the Egyptians worshipped. And so God really spared no expense in revealing that he wants to save his people, that he wants to have them for himself. We remember when we studied the story of Exodus as a church that there's this image that what God wants to do is save people from oppression— bring them to himself. He wants to bring them into a promised land. He wants to bring them into his presence, which he'll do in the wilderness, and then eventually when he establishes them again in the holy land. So we see that there's all of this working together, and sometimes what we call this is God's providence, and that's really just a fancy way of saying we believe that God provided guidance and care to his people and Tony Evans who's a pastor writes this he says providence is the hand of God in the glove of history it is the work of God whereby he integrates and blends events in the universe to fulfill his original design for which for which it was created it is God sitting behind the steering wheel of time Providence refers to God's governance of all events to direct them towards an end. It is God taking what you and I would call luck, chance, mistakes, and happenstance, and stitching them together into achieving his program. And we see that really come to pass. We see this series of events that get stitched together all through Scripture up into the point of Moses, and then it continues on with him. God, of course, revealed himself to uh, take care of what was going on and remove the Israelites out of Pharaoh's grasp, and then we see that he even goes on to what's next. He goes on to weaken the power of this group that oppresses, because what happens is as Pharaoh chases out the Israelites, God ends up wiping him out too, and he does that so that eventually... The Israelites, through 40 years of wandering, can learn to trust in him. And he provides this providence, he provides this guidance by being with his people. We see that as they travel around, God appears in a a cloud and as a pillar of fire, and he guides them by day and by night. We see that Moses has these interactions with God up on a mountain by which He's able to see the backside of God, where he's able to hear from God, where he's able to write down what God's plan is for his people. This is where we get the Ten Commandments and all the law that we read about in the subsequent books that Moses wrote in the Bible. All of this, of course, though, was great for them, but it didn't have much impact. Or did it? Well, it has great impact because from that place that they're saved from and to, God begins to orchestrate a series of events through history that we read about in the rest of the Old Testament, which build God's people towards coming to a place where they're reminded of their need for God himself. And then at just the right time, Jesus is born. And that's what we're celebrating ultimately through Advent. And we see that there is this comparison that God does. I mean, the Bible is just so well orchestrated. God was able to write in all these literary themes into real history so that we could see his plan. We see like Moses, Jesus was born in a tumultuous time of history. Luke chapter 2. Read, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. The people of Israel go through all these different circumstances through history where they become under the control of foreign power. And in the time of Jesus, we see that it's no longer Egypt, but now it's the empire of Rome. And once again, just like the Israelites called out as slaves... In the days of Rome and Jesus, what we see is they call out once again. God, where are you? How are you working? Why can't I see you? What is your plan? Why do you allow us to exist in some sort of slavery? And while it wasn't the type of slavery they experienced in Egypt where they were literally beaten and flogged and told to build things with their bare hands, in this day, the Romans would do whatever they wanted, but it was just different. For instance, they could actually come into a town and say, you know what, we want all of you to leave town, to go back from where your ancestors are from, and then you're going to have to go through this census. This long period of time where they would have to live out on the road in places where they couldn't be comfortable because there was no room for everybody to live in the city, and they had to stay there until the Romans were done with them. This, of course, is what we see when we read about the story of Joseph and Mary and how they had to travel and they had to go to the city where they would have had some family, but obviously not close enough family because they end up with no room. No room at the end, no room with family, and so Jesus is born in this strange basket, a manger. And Moses is placed in this basket of reeds and tar. Jesus is placed in a horse trough where he's born. Just like Moses, we see that Jesus would have somebody after his life right from the very beginning. In Moses' time, it was Pharaoh who ordered that Hebrew babies be drowned in the Nile. In Jesus' day, it was Herod who was worried that his role was threatened as the ruler of the land. We read about this in Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod, not one of the Jews, heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So just like Pharaoh had felt threatened by the Israelites, Herod becomes threatened by this baby that's born who's supposed to be a king could rule the Jewish people. And so what he says is he says, I want you to kill every baby boy two and under. And I want all of the people to be living in fear because while well, I'm not a Jew, I'm the king of the Jews. And so we see that there's a lot of similarities, and I believe what God wants us to see there is that he wants us to begin thinking, when we come into the Christmas season, when we hear the story of Jesus' birth, to think about the extent by which God would go to show his love and to accomplish his plans. I mean, if you saw this and you were reading about this and you were a good Jewish person in the first century and you're starting to flip those first couple pages of Matthew or Mark or Luke and uh, you start to read some of these similarities that we have with Moses, you'd go, I think God's going to do something again. I think God's got a plan. Remember what God did with Moses? Moses. Remember how he was willing to go to such a great extent to put our impressors in their own right place? Remember when he was willing to save us from being distant from him and bring us in to a place where we could experience him daily? Maybe that's what God was doing with Jesus again. And we see that that is what God does with Jesus, but he just goes to, once again, an even greater extent. Because unlike Moses just being a messenger, Jesus was a messenger and was God himself. Moses was a man who relied on God to accomplish the deliverance. Jesus was both God and man. He certainly was this messenger because we see that as Jesus is born, he grows up to teach a message of hope and peace and love. He taught people what it was to live a good life that would flourish for themselves and for those around them. We can read amazing like the teachings like the Sermon on the Mount or the parables where Jesus just gives all this amazing insight about how life could be better than living in the way that their oppressors want them to live. But where Jesus went beyond what Moses could do is he stepped in To actually make all this happen. Moses had to go at the direction of God and Jesus went at the direction of God the Father but he himself was God as well. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5 21 God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. We could be made right with God. You see, only God could make it possible for people to permanently experience what the Israelites and Moses got to experience with God's presence with them daily in the wilderness. If it was up to you and I, we just can't make that happen. We would maybe do well for a little while in trying to follow God and have a relationship with him, but you and I all know that would last for what? 10 minutes before we screw up, before that temptation comes across our desk at work or at home or as we're driving on the road when someone cuts us off and we decide to shout expletives, right? We, there's just so much that would keep us going back to a separation from God because God is perfect and we are not. We are separated from him. But because Jesus was both God and man, he was able to make a way for us to be with him always. And so Jesus was able to navigate the life of temptation without sin. He was able to perfectly rely on God the Father and show that it is possible to stay connected with him in every moment, even the most difficult of circumstances. And he underwent all of that. And because of this, when he sacrificed himself on the cross, he died. But because he was God, he rose again. And because of that, he invited us in, right? He said, if you would have faith and trust in me, you could experience all that I would have for you. You could experience my love to the full extent. And for a while, it might feel like you are an Israelite trapped in a situation that you cannot get out of, there will be one day by faith that you will be fully with me, where there will be no more sickness, suffering, sadness, pain, or sin to separate you and I. That's what we talk about when we're talking about heaven. We need to be reminded at the Advent season of the love and provision of God because we need to be reminded that even when we feel beat up, when we feel lost, when we feel unloved, unknown, unseen, that he's with us. There's this reminder continually throughout scripture of how these things bring us us towards him. Even the author of Hebrews in uh, chapter three ends up telling us that Moses was really to point us to Jesus and Jesus is really here to point to what it could look like for us to live with him. It says in Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in your heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we will acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful to in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house is a greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of all things. Moses was as faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Which is to say this, when we come to Advent season, our focus should be on him. And it should be on the good things that God is building. And the thing that he is building is a life for you with him. And it's a place to experience being known when you feel unknown, to feel seen when you feel unseen, to feel heard when you feel like no one's listening, and to be loved when you feel like no one else cares. Whether you see it, in your, see it or not in your life, God is at work. And that can be really hard, especially for some as we come into the Advent season, For a lot of people, when we come into the Advent season, there's a lot of loneliness and pain. There's a lot of intangibles that come as we anticipate a season of celebration where we can wonder, does anyone even really care? Does anyone even really know I'm here? Everyone's just so busy. No one's got time for me. There can be this sense of, would somebody really love me if they got to know me? This is why people overcompensate with gifts all the time, right? We have this desire to need to either express or love or receive love. And it becomes this transactional, meaningful thing to us that fails on December 26th. There's others of us who have maybe experienced love and lost love, and we come to this season and we go, will I ever feel loved again? I believe this is why God gives us stories like Moses. Because those Israelites, they cried out for 400 years. Is there anyone who loves me? Is there anyone who knows me? Is there anyone who cares? It's the reason why the story of Jesus is powerful in so many dimensions because every single one of us comes to a place where we say, does God even care? Does he even exist? Is there anyone there who knows me and sees me? Is there anyone who would love me if they really saw how I lived? As we read these stories, we're reminded that God knows us, that he hears us, that he sees us, and that he loves us. The God who created you is building a house for you, which means he knows the deepest place of your suffering. He knows about those things that you dare not say for fear that it will be more painful when you bring it to pass your lips. He knows about that part of your life which you wish would go away. He knows about every detail of your past. And yet he still came, while you were an enemy of his, to die for you so that you might live with him. So know this as you're in the Advent season. God is at work in your life long before you see it. Just as he was in the life of the Israelites. Just as he was in the life of the Gentiles and those Romans who would eventually come to know him. God is present. And for that, we get to celebrate that we can have a life with him. In just a moment, we're going to, the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing this song. And the song is, Oh, Praise the Name. And I really love this song because it just sort of articulates the truth of the story of who Jesus is and what he has done. And there's this part where, We're just repeatedly saying we need to praise his name. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. For some of you, this is going to be a song where it's just that rote memorization or that song that's catchy that you've sung time and time again. And I would encourage you in this moment, instead of just singing the words as they're written, to really truly think about what they mean really think about how this is an articulation of God's love for you. Think about the extent by which he wanted to reach out into your life and my life to show his love for us. And then as you sing those songs, really, truly just articulate back to him about how you want to praise him, how you want to love him. Or maybe... Just sit under it. Allow the opportunity of the others who are singing the song to just sort of wash over you and just embrace the truth of it. You might be here and you might just be like, this is a really crummy season. I don't like it. I feel lonely. I feel unloved. I feel unknown. I feel unworthy. And for you, I would hope that you would just be able to hear from your church family, the words that they're singing back to God to reveal to you just how much he loves you, to remind you that even if you can't see it, he's at work within your life so that as we go, we can all go with that memory, that there is a God who is guiding you and caring for you because he loves you. So we're gonna sing in just a moment, but first let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you Oh, Lord, I thank you for your presence. And God, sometimes your presence can be so tangible and we can just recognize it so easily. And I thank you for those moments. I thank you for how we can have those moments, just like the Israelites said, where it's like, wow, God's right there. He's leading me. He's guiding me. I hear his voice. And Lord God, I pray for those who are in our church family today who are in that season Lord God, I just pray that it would become something that they would embed deep down in their hearts and in their minds. Lord, would we be able to carry that with us through the days that are difficult? Would we be able to come back to it when there's times when we just feel like you're so distant? But God, I know there's also those who are hurting, those who are feeling such a great distance from you, those who just feel so unloved, maybe some who are angry at you, Some who are frustrated by wondering time and time again why the things that they want from you just don't come to pass. For them, Lord God, I just pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'd reach out into their lives. And Lord, would you allow them to feel your presence? Would you allow them to be reminded of the truth of how much you love them, of the house that you're building for them, so that one day, by faith in you and what you've done, all the pain, will be passed, and they they will be fully in your presence. They will experience the fullness of your healing. They will receive all that you have promised to them. And so, Lord God, as we think about these things, we wanna praise you. We wanna acknowledge you for the things that only you could accomplish, and so we thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.